I know that last Sunday night Richard explained sanctification to you. And I want to assure you that there will be something for you this morning if you were here last Sunday night. So please don't rush out this morning when you hear that that is going to be our theme this morning again. That is the part of Jesus' prayer, as I've called it, Jesus' prayer par excellence. And in our series in John 17, we've come to a place where Jesus prays that his disciples be sanctified. Sometimes when the Spirit wants to make a point, even unknown to the preacher, he repeats something that he's already said. And I didn't know that's what Richard was going to be preaching on when I was preparing this message. So hopefully we'll find something helpful again this morning as we think about sanctification. Richard asked, are we fighting with the wrong weaponry? Are we making every effort? We are sanctified, and yet we are to pursue our sanctification. And that second part is really our main focus this morning. So if you turn to John 17, we'll read from verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And that's how far we've come. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The foreman calls the property agent. He has an obvious grin of contentment, the satisfaction of a job well done. As he tells the property agent, the building work is finished, the house is complete. The agent calls the buyer, who's understandably thrilled with this news, and immediately sets out to see the finished property. When they arrive, what do they see? Well, they see a brand new house, their house, they've purchased it. They look around inside and they're satisfied with everything that's been completed in the building work. But whilst the building work is done, and this is a new house, in another sense, It's definitely not completed because there is much more work that needs to be done before they live in it. This is only a partially helpful illustration of what Christ prays for his disciples next in John 17. If our bodies are described as temples, houses of the Holy Spirit, then we know that as soon as we're saved, the Spirit is received by us and he will never leave us. But there is much more work to be done in us. 
And some have called this moral renovation or spiritual renovation. There's more than morality involved. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. It is a work of the Spirit that continues until the day we are presented blameless in God's presence. We are not saved from our sins and left alone. We are renewed day by day. We are being transformed. This is a continual process. Our bodies are a temple of the Spirit, but there's always spiritual renovation to be done. There's a little book called Sanctification, and I read it when I was 18, and I was trying to wrap my head around what this means, and I found it really helpful. In it, the pastor who wrote it, Mike Riccardi, begins by observing that we as Christians tend to love the doctrine of justification because it is the essence of the gospel of God's grace to us. He has declared us righteous in his sight, not because of our merit, not because of our work, but because of Christ's. He says we also love the doctrine of glorification because we eagerly look forward to that day when Christ takes us home or he comes to take us home and he presents us blameless before him with perfect bodies like his own, no struggles, no suffering. But then Mike Riccardi writes this, sometimes the doctrine of sanctification doesn't fill us with the same sense of wonder and appreciation as do the doctrines of justification and glorification. Because to think of the doctrine of sanctification simply reminds us of what we ought to be, but what we are not yet. And maybe you feel like that this morning as you read Christ's prayer for your own sanctification. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, here's another sermon that reminds me of how imperfect I am. Hopefully this morning, we will find comfort, hope, and encouragement in this prayer of Jesus for us to be holy. First, we need to understand what sanctification means. Then we need to think about how it's possible, then where it is from, and lastly, why do we need it? So it's a what, how, where, and why sermon. Firstly, sanctification, what is it? To be set apart. The words holy, hallowed, sanctification, these are all Christian words that so often slip off the tongue, but we don't really know what they mean. They are all from similar words in the Bible that mean set apart. In the Old Testament, you can't probably see that picture, Aaron is anointing priests. Various items in the Old Testament were anointed, were set apart, were consecrated. Clothes were, animals were, people were, even a mountain is described as holy. And they're set apart for God, And by God, because if anything is going to be used for God's service, it must be set apart from common use. For something to be made holy, to be sanctified, it requires an act of God. Let's briefly look at two um, examples in the book of Leviticus. A book that is absolutely full of holiness language. Leviticus chapter 8 verse 10. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Leviticus 
Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Consecrated is the same word as sanctified in other translations. Flick to chapter 20, verse 7. Again, it's consecrate or sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So God calls his people to be holy, but also states that it is he who makes them holy, literally who sets them apart. And in the New Testament, God reveals that he makes his people holy through the work of Christ on the cross and the gift of his spirit given to each believer upon conversion. This is why Paul likes to refer to his fellow Christians as saints. So often he writes to saints in different cities and towns around uh, the ancient world. Saints is a title we don't deserve. I think it's a title that we're a little bit embarrassed by. I don't know how many times a fellow believer has referred to you as a saint. I doubt you have spoken of many of your brothers and sisters as saints. We're a little bit embarrassed by this. Now, I don't need to tell any of you that being sanctified does not mean that you are perfect. I think if we are not reminded of that daily by scripture, then maybe our spouse or children, a teacher or an employer will remind us of that daily. But without getting too technical about this teaching about sanctification, it's a process throughout our lives as disciples And it's one that Christ prays for us to continue in. You can go back and listen to Richard's sermon from last Sunday night. And he will talk about words like progressive and positional sanctification. But simply, it has past, present, and future aspects. In Christ, those who believe are by faith sanctified already, set apart as holy in God's sight. Otherwise, how could we ever hope to approach God like we have done this morning twice in prayer? We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10, 10. This is the Christian's fixed and final state. But Jesus said that they too may be truly sanctified in verse 19 of our passage. But the form of the word he uses indicates that the disciples have been sanctified They are set apart by him, for him, for eternity, because of his own sanctification. His saving work on the cross. His saving work on the cross is eternally effective. It will not run out of effectiveness. And so we will not run out of being sanctified before God. That's in the past. It's done. In our text, though, Jesus is praying for his disciples to be sanctified so it's still going on and that's why Paul says things like we are being transformed into the same image of Christ that's continual that's present and the future part of sanctification is this one day it will be complete because we will be like Christ faultless to stand before his throne first Thessalonians 5 23 so present past and future 
And the word for being transformed into the same image is the word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. It refers to a change of form, but not merely an outward form that changes. It's an inward form as well. The butterfly is not outwardly a butterfly and inwardly still a caterpillar. No, there's been an inward and an outward change. The same word that describes Jesus being in the form of God, the morphe of God and of man. This was not outwardly only, because if it was, our entire gospel would fall apart. He was truly God and truly man, inwardly and outwardly. And so we need both inward and outward holiness to be like Christ. We need first to be sanctified on the inside. And that status does not change, but our outward actions need to be sanctified, set apart for God too. To be pleasing in God's sight, our attitudes, our behaviors, the intentions of all of our actions need to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Now, we don't need to stay on this definition much longer because Richard's done the groundwork for us, but we do want to ask, how is this all possible? And so that's our second point sanctification high verse 17 says sanctify them by the truth your word is truth who can you trust Ak, you couldn't trust those politicians the media is corrupt you can't believe a word they say have you ever heard people say things like that i have because i've said them and nowadays people are becoming increasingly sensitive to bias from big establishments and there's a distrust one journalist wrote a piece for a popular british newspaper called why can't we agree on what's true anymore he observed that cynicism has grown within society and people are becoming more and more dependent on their own experiences and beliefs about how the world really works unsurprisingly that writer believes that we need to trust, trust the professional media and news outlets more and ourselves less. Now, he's right to caution our dependency to trust our own experience. But he's wrong about where we should look for truth. Because there is only one source of truth. And only one source of truth is infallible. And it's scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. Literally breathed out by God. And the longest portion of our entire Bible is a psalm devoted to praising God for his word. It's Psalm 119. There we read statements like this. Your law is truth. All your commandments are true. And if you're 160 verses into that psalm and you're still not convinced, the psalmist says, the sum of your word is truth. It's all truth. That's his point. And we should be thankful for that because we know where we can find the truth. Here in John's gospel, Jesus has told the disciples he is going to leave their presence. And in John 14 verse 6, he has identified himself as the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. So if he's the truth and he's leaving them, how can they hope to be sanctified by the truth if he's not with them? Well, the answer to that comes 10 verses later in John 14. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, 
even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. Just as Jesus is the truth, so too the spirit is the truth. And Christ now speaks to us through his spirit-inspired word. And his word is where we ought to turn if we want to be sanctified by the truth. We don't go looking for books like Your Best Life Now, 12 Rules for Life, 7 Habits of Highly Effective Living. These are all bestseller books. Why do we look for these books? What is wrong with us? Why do we look for truth and joy and self-help books? If we thought we could help ourselves, we wouldn't need to turn to someone else to write a book about how we can do it. No, we need truth, actual truth that doesn't change. There cannot be truths, plural, your truth and my truth, his truth, her truth, and any other made-up pronouns truth. There is only one truth, and he is called Yahweh. He has revealed to us in his word his truth, and we can be absolutely certain of its reliability. That's why Jesus pointed his disciples to the truth. Now, John 17, verse 17, is certainly not the first time that Jesus affirmed the truthfulness of Scripture. He told the Pharisees, it would be easier for heaven and earth themselves to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to pass away. He also said, Scripture cannot be broken. And a very powerful example of Jesus' own view of Scripture as truth is when he declared this, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, which was their scriptures at this point, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. We know exactly what he was talking about there. This is a huge statement. Jesus is saying that the scriptures that the people of his day had were sufficient for faith and absolute certainty about Christ, who he was. Perhaps you heard, I think Richard may have mentioned it a few months ago, there was a big push to prevent the repainting of the sea wall in Port Stewart. It has texts like, the sea is his and he has made it, and you must be born again. These things are painted on the wall. There were a couple of dozen complaints that came in, and that was enough to cause a fuss And the council brought in so-called experts to discuss whether this was harmful language, whether this was damaging to people who saw it. And these experts advised the councillors in their decision that they needed to undergo equality training. I'd love to hear what that was. But perhaps even some Christians thought, well, what good is that painting doing anyway? Sometimes I've been traveling in the country roads in this country and I've seen little texts painted on signs Things like you must be born again. And I've, I've asked myself, what good is that doing? Why is that there? It's strange. I don't see it anywhere else in the UK. But that is exposure to truth. And that can't be a bad thing. Winston Churchill said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves off and pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. And sadly, that is true in our country. 
We have a richer heritage than most nations do when it comes to exposure to the truth of Scripture, but most ignore it. They don't believe the truth. To quote the psalmist, the wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. They don't believe the truth, and so they don't believe in holiness, and so they don't believe there's any need for them to be holy. They don't care about a holy God and his authority over their every breath. But I think sometimes we think holiness is a little bit legalistic. It sounds a little bit too highbrow. It sounds a bit pompous to say that we're holy and that we're supposed to be holy. But it's not a legalistic thing to seek to be holy because legalism says, I will do something for God so that he will do something for me. But a humble heart says... I will do this for God because I love him. I want to please him. And I've been called to be like him. So Jesus prays for his followers to be sanctified by the truth of his spirit-inspired word. And that means we must read it alone, but also together. We must study it. We must reflect upon it, meditate upon it, and learn it. We must obey it out of delight Because we know that all of it is for our good. It is truth for life. It is all sufficient, without error, unchanging, God-exalting truth. The psalmist says it's more desirable than fine gold, much fine gold. He says it's sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's the answer to the question of sanctification. How shall we be sanctified? By the truth. And so we come to the why. Why be sanctified at all? Well, Jesus says in verse 18, he has sent his disciples into the world. Any child who's starting their first day at school in a new school feels uncertain, feels a little bit anxious. And it helps a lot, speaking from my own experience, if you have an older sibling who has been attending that school for a couple of years. They've already been there. They can reassure you that things are going to be okay. It's not so bad. And they're also still there with you. So you know where to go if you're struggling or scared. You can go and find them. And you also trust your parents. Your parents have made the decision to send your sibling there before you and now you. And so you trust their wise decision. What reassurance is there for us in Christ's prayer that we be sanctified especially for young disciples in the faith, and I don't mean young by age, but spiritually. The all-wise Father has sent his Son into the world, the world that is full of sin and sin's effects, and the world did not overcome the Son. The Son overcame the world by the power of his resurrection life. That same power is at work in each one of us who believe, and we are then sent out with the authority of God backing us, the Spirit of God empowering us, and the Word of God guiding us. So why do we need to be sanctified or set apart to serve? Because we have a mission to do. The Father sent the Son, he completed his mission, and the Son sends his disciples Just as Moses was commanded to consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve as priests, so Jesus consecrates his disciples and sends them out into the world. 
They are not of the world. We've looked at that. But they are being sent into the world to serve there. So they need to be set apart. Notice that sanctification, as we've said, means to be set apart, not set aside. It isn't that God saved us and left us. Would the Lord God Almighty send us his precious only son to die a criminal's death, to be tortured, to die in the most horrific, gruesome fashion, taking upon himself the wrath of God against all sin, and then leave us alone after that, unconcerned with how we live, with what we do with his precious gift. No, Richard said last week, the gospel is big. He called it the project of holiness, of Christ-likeness, because God has a mission for all those he saves, and it's the mission of the good news. So he sets us apart to serve him, not to hide from our mission. Saved, continually sanctified, and set apart to serve. This is all of Christ. This is not from us. He sends us into the world as he was sent. So think for a moment, how was he sent? He was sent into the world in humble circumstances, utterly poor, like his parents. He was sent into the world in a quiet backwater town called Bethlehem. He was raised by poor parents. He grew up in relative obscurity in a town called Nazareth, where apparently nothing good had ever come. He was despised and rejected by those he came to serve. He suffered greatly, even unto death on a Roman cross. This is how Jesus was sent into the world. And he says his disciples will be sent likewise. We will suffer for the faith that we've been entrusted with, but this is for his glory. So we rejoice in that. But we also rejoice that we're not sent to serve and to suffer on our own. His spirit is our comforter, our helper. We need to be consecrated for the mission that we've been commanded to complete. Why were the Israelites under Joshua's leadership successful in taking Jericho and moving forward into the promised land? Because they were consecrated before they set out for their mission. In Joshua 5, all of the men were circumcised and then they celebrated the Passover. Their circumcision was a very explicit symbol of their separateness from other peoples, that they were set apart to serve Yahweh. And then God blessed their service. In World War I, as it began, all kinds of people were drafted for the military. There were fishermen, farmers, there were factory workers, and they all joined the war effort. But they were trained every day for their battle because they were not equipped for this battle. And even whenever they left for the front, any time that they were not involved in active service, which for some of them was a long portion of time, they were being trained day by day. Military strategies were changing. Technologies were being upgraded. So they needed to have their training upgraded and updated. They were continually being trained. Hopefully you see the point. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness, Paul said. Our mission is given briefly in John 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And we refer to the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28, as the Great Commission. 
because that's where Christ commissions or sends out his disciples on their divine mission shortly before he ascends to be with his father. But here in Jesus' prayer in John 17, we have a brief glimpse into what this commission will be. We see here in his prayer that we have this great commission that he's going to give to his disciples, first offered up to his father in prayer, and that's what guarantees its success. God alone, not our efforts. Everything we do for God's mission, everything we do to reach outside the kingdom and and speak to people about the gospel, it's all flowing from this moment in the prelude to Calvary where Christ prayed for its success. If he sends us, we can be confident that he will also equip us. So the final question we want to ask of this big word is how, sorry, is where from the source of our sanctification. For their sake, I sanctify myself or consecrate myself. This time last week, Claire and I were in the lovely city of Budapest. And Budapest is an ancient city It's very old, and it's a city of statues. One of those statues is Artur Gorgai. He's one of their favorite 19th century military generals. He was well respected because he inspired great confidence in his revolutionary army. Unlike most generals, he fought alongside his soldiers. He fought alongside them in the wind and the rain and the snow. And it's documented that he took serious injuries in his fighting. But because of his fearless leadership, he could then order that same fearlessness from the men that he led. He wanted them to be fearless in their mission. He consecrated them by first consecrating himself for frontline battle. What courage we receive whenever we can observe boldness boldness and courage in the one who leads us. Take your eyes off leaders who enjoy a round of drinks in their gardens whenever we're supposed to be at home protecting the NHS. Don't look at those leaders for confidence and boldness. Look to our leader who humbled himself to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who overcome, overcame so that we too can be overcomers. Christ consecrated himself for us so that we may too be consecrated to serve him. Now given all that we understand about what sanctification means, we don't look at verse 19 and understand it as Jesus saying that he made himself more holy. Because we know that he is the Lord God who is holy holy, holy. Jesus was instead saying that he had set himself apart to do the Father's will. Every section of his prayer emphasizes the union of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John's gospel is full of this subject. In John 10, Jesus actually refers to himself indirectly as the one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. God the Father sent Jesus on his mission to earth, and Jesus is saying confidently, I have completed my mission. I have consecrated myself. The only way that can be said 
is because of the cross of Christ. Because on the cross, Christ completed the mission that he was set apart to do. No one else could accomplish it. He alone was sent to do it. And because Christ has secured the victory over the powers of sin and death, by faith, we are sanctified by him through his blood, washed clean from our transgressions, and able to stand before a holy God, clothed in our Savior's righteousness. That's why it's helpful that the New Living Translation, it translates this as, I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them. This is how Christ consecrated himself, by giving himself sacrificially. We absolutely need this truth. All of us do, because we can offer nothing to pay for our sins. So we love to hear words like Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8, which the writer of the Hebrews gladly recited. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. God took no pleasure in offerings and sacrifices, but in a peculiar way, he took pleasure in the death of his son because it was a sacrificial death. He wasn't glad to see his son suffering on that cross, but he was glad to see total demonstration of obedience to his father. And that's what God delights in. So it's like the the hymn in Christ alone, which says, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I mean, don't read that satisfaction as the feeling you get when you win a round of golf or you bake the perfect pavlova. This is a different kind of satisfaction. This is another word for to be fulfilled, to be paid for. But I want to say something to you this morning. If you are not familiar with this because you're not saved, because you haven't been set apart, because you're not believing in Christ. If that's you, then Christ, God does not see Christ's righteousness when he looks at your heart. He sees the dark stains of sin and the emptiness of a life not lived for him, but lived for yourself. And you can't know the peace of being sanctified by Christ if you will not repent, turn 180 degrees away from your sin and confess him as Lord of your life. He has to do something about the rebellion of, of us against his righteous judgment. We have to be punished for our sins unless we will believe in the one he has already poured out his wrath upon. So trust in his finished work his obedience to God's will in a way that you and I could never fulfill and believe in him for life that is full, life that is eternal. Christ's next prayer point following these verses reveals that he's not just praying for the 12 disciples who stand in his midst. He's praying for those who will believe through their testimony as well. That's you and I if we're believing in him today. So I appeal to you, if you're not, as an imperfect follower of Christ, as one who is continually depending on his spirit to give me greater grace, to be patient with me as I struggle, to help me to grow to be more like Christ, that's 
how I appeal to you today, not as one who has it all figured out. No one here in the family of God pretends to be perfectly following God's law. We are not. We are imperfect, needy followers of Jesus Christ. But we've been sent to share his good news, the good news that he has died for you, but the good news that his spirit is able to equip you to live for him. And if you will believe, you will begin a lifelong and eternity long relationship with him as your friend, as your loving Lord. Because Christ has done God's will, we are certain that in his strength, we too can do that will. So can we find any hope this morning in these verses? If we do find ourselves battling against sin and struggling to overcome, struggling to grow in holiness, what is our comfort? You maybe say, this is all great theoretically. I see the words on the page. But why don't I even want to open my Bible sometimes? One Christian mother, Mrs. Wesley, she said to her son Charles, either the Bible will keep you from sin or your sin will keep you from this book. It's sin that keeps us from wanting to grow in Christ-likeness. But this book, all 66 books of it, are useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So yes, dear brother or sister, there is help for us in the daily battle against sin in this truth. The help comes from the spirit of truth, the one who inspired the words on these pages. He is the helper, and he works in us through his inspired word to minister to us, to highlight our flaws, to point out things that need to be corrected, but to encourage us, to push us along every single day. And if you do feel cold and uninterested towards the word, ask the spirit to light a fire in you, to give you a holy zeal for the things of God, to give you a passion for purity, to give you an all-consuming pursuit for what pleases him. Not only will the Holy Spirit answer that word, he intercedes for you on your behalf. He helps you to pray. He unites us as believers and he's blessed you with a loving church family here. We're not supposed to grow in holiness in isolation. No, we grow together. We learn from one another as we share our burdens and we pray for them, lifting each other up before him in our prayer meetings each week. We study further together on Wednesdays or on Monday nights at Rooted or at Iron or the Men's Fellowship or at Gift or at Pathfinders. We develop and utilize the gifts that God has given us too, not for our own edification, but for others. All of this is of the Spirit. Sanctification is of the Spirit. Now may the God of peace himself Sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we'll close by singing.